middle of Smyrna. Okay, so we're in chapter 2. We're looking at the letter of Christ's letter to the angel of the church of Smyrna. And in Smyrna, we begin to see reference to suffering. And we, we paused, we took a little pause button in Revelation to talk about suffering. Because we are going to see buku suffering in Revelation. And we need to understand how to interpret that suffering. Because our response to suffering differs depending, should be different, depending on the cause of that suffering. And so last week we talked about the fact that sometimes suffering is initiated by God and sometimes it's initiated by Satan. We, looked, we talked about scriptures. I didn't like give you the scripture references because they were pretty famous stories, the ones that I was referring to. But we looked at places where God initiates suffering and we saw that the pattern is that God will initiate suffering Generally for two reasons, either to, to punish us or to discipline us. The, the key points there that I want you to take away from that discussion are, number one, God never, ever punishes or disciplines you without you knowing clearly why he's doing it, without him having warned you. Now, that doesn't mean you listened. Okay, that, you know, that doesn't mean you had your ears open, but he gave you plenty of warning. There will be no doubt about it. If you ever are suffering and wonder if God is causing it or some misguided Christian comes up to you and says you're suffering because of your sin, you know, or you're, you're being punished by your illness, that is not the case. Absolutely, that is not scriptural unless God told you clearly what that sin was and you better repent okay so if you're if you're in any doubt whatsoever then the suffering would be initiated by satan not by god the second important point that i want you to mention and to remember and that i did not mention last week was the sin that causes the discipline or the punishment may not be your personal sin you also may suffer at the hands of god because you are part of a collective group that has sinned. For example, a nation or a city. There is plenty of evidence in Scripture. One, there's two that come immediately to mind. One is Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember that story where the angel of the Lord came to rain you know, sulfur down and utterly destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because they were so wicked? And Abraham said, well, you know, if there's 100 men or 50 men or 10 good men in this city... Won't you spare the city, Lord? And God said, yeah, sure. But if Abraham had not asked that special favor, God was going to go destroy that city, regardless of how many good people individually might be in it, because as a collective whole, that city was so immoral and had sinned so badly. And it was the same with the nation of Israel. We know for a fact that the nation of Israel was punished severely, taken into captivity, scattered all over the world, disintegrated as a nation, essentially, because of their collective sin. But we also know for a fact that there were good men in Israel, godly men in Israel, who suffered that punishment just like the bad men did. One immediately should come to mind for the whole group. Daniel. One of the most beloved men of God 
suffered just as much as the wicked man, okay, in being taken to captivity, abused by the Babylonians, etc., etc. So, if you are undergoing what you what may suffering, you have to first say, is this suffering from God or is this suffering from from Satan? If the only way it's going to be from God is if there has been sin, either your personal sin or a collective sin, and and a lack of repentance. Okay? Now, we're going to start this week and finish up the the topic of suffering by talking about Satan, okay, and him, how he initiates suffering and what that looks like. And one one of the questions that comes up is, well, God's all powerful. Why didn't he just, like, Get rid of Satan. Why, why are we having to do this like this, right? Well, we're going to talk about that first part of this lesson. And, we're, and I'm going to explain to you out of Scripture why that is. Um, first off, and it's, it's, you kind of have to back up to the beginning, because first off, you have to remember that man was a special creation. We were not like the animals, the plants, the fish, the birds. We were special, and and one of the very special things that we were given was free will because God desperately wanted part of his creation to choose to love him. Not, you know, he could create beings all day long that automatically loved him, you know. But he desperately wanted some of his creation to choose him. And so he gave us free will. Obviously, it's God's desire that we choose him because that's the way, number one, we were designed. And if we choose him, we get great riches, eternal rewards, everlasting life. Everybody lives literally happily ever after, right? On the face of it, there would seem to be no reason for us to choose anything but God. I mean, if this was a rational decision, we would never sin. Okay, because there would be there's no percentage in choosing anything but God. We can do nothing but shoot ourselves in the foot. The problem is Satan. Satan also was created by God. Satan had was greatly gifted. He would and and was very powerful. Still is, but he chose against God. And Satan intends he fully intends to destroy God and reign in his place. This is a power struggle. Guys, and it's a serious power struggle. There is a big battle going on. And Satan, he doesn't love us. He doesn't want us necessarily, but he wants us to choose against God. Okay? He wants us to choose against God. And if we choose, for, if he can make us choose against God, that's the best as far as he's concerned. If we, if failing that, if we do choose God, then he does everything he can to make us fall away. And as soon as we take the least little step towards falling away, he's right there in God's face accusing us and saying, ah, look, you know, this one is, is doing bad. Okay? And that's actually scriptural. Look ahead in Revelation 12:10. It's on your scripture handout if you, want to, if you want to look at it. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, that's Satan, the accuser of our brethren, has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. 
and they did not love their life even when faced with death. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. Okay, so that's the spiritual picture of what's going on in this battle. While, while Jesus was on earth, he confirmed several times that Satan is currently ruler of this earth that we live on. He has been given dominion and power over the earth temporarily. Okay, This, I believe, was not a change as a result of original sin. I think this must have been Satan's original role as intended by God was ruler of this earthly empire. It's just that Satan has perverted it. Now, that is just my opinion, so, you know, you can believe that or not. Look at John 12:31. Jesus is the one who's speaking here, so he's the ultimate authority on this. And he said, "Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out." John 14:30. "I will not speak much more with you For the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me, but so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. So, Satan has two roles now. He's ruler of the world and accuser of the saints. And he has worked against us from the very beginning, drawing us into sin. And God sent Jesus. He sent Jesus to, it just said, to destroy the works of Satan. We're going to uh, look at that verse in John 3, 8. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Satan is at work in the world. Jesus came to destroy his works. In the end, God will win. Satan will be destroyed. And his works will be utterly destroyed. And those who have chosen God will live forever. And those who have chosen against God will perish. John 3.18. This is the second part of the very famous scripture, John 3.17. For God so loved the world. Remember that one? Well, we very rarely go on to 3.18. But 3.18 is pretty important as far as I'm concerned. And what it says is, he who believes in Jesus is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. Okay, so the choice you may are making the choice every day and your choice is what judges you. I mean, you're either in the light or you're in the darkness. There ain't much judging about that. Okay, You made the choice and you picked. And that's what, that's what it means when it says that, that judgment has already happened of people who have chosen darkness. Okay, Now there are going to be end judgments and we're going to talk about that in a minute. But we saw last week that and we know from personal experience that mankind has always been unable to resist Satan, right? And he, he will drag he will take whatever it is that you love the most and pervert it. Won't he? He will take your greatest strengths, your greatest gifts that God has given you, and tempt you into using them yourself without the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Using them for your own good 
or utterly perverting them in other ways. So we were all, as you saw by that previous verse, we were already judged by our sin. Our choice has always, every one of us, every man from the beginning, our choice has been to sin, right? Therefore, we were already judged. We chose Satan and therefore certain death. But God was not willing to let us go. And so he literally just gifted us with life. He sent Jesus and just gave life to us. Where When we had absolutely no hope. Look at Ephesians 2, verse 1 through 7. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. That's another phrase that is referring to Satan, the prince of this world. Okay, it's the, it's the same, same guy. Of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That's another you know, phrase that you can recognize as Satan. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sin, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him, that's God. Raised us up with God. Seated us with him, that's God. With God in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, God might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And there's no doubt about it. God just reached down and plucked us up into heaven through Christ. Christ alone made it possible for us to choose God successfully. We could choose God always before, but we were always unsuccessful in the end. Because we always sinned. So now all we have to do is repent of our sin. Just be sorry for your sin. Just choose say. I'm not going to do it anymore, Lord. I really am not. With your help, I'm not going to do this sin, whatever sin it is in your life, anymore. And Christ enters in and cleanses us and makes us holy in the face of God. Now, many of you have been Christians for years and years and years, and and you know this from having been raised Christian your whole lives. There are many people in this class for whom this is the very first Bible class they've ever had. Many people in this class who may not actually even be Christian, okay? And so I'm kind of telling you from the grassroots because it's important to understand from the grassroots, to understand how important this choice was. Because now that Christ has come, there is a battle. There, there is hope, okay, before Satan was winning. There was absolutely no way we were going to choose God successfully. Christ evened up the odds. He did better than that, but he at least evened them up, right? So, so now there really is a battle going on for every single soul on earth. And where there is battle, there is suffering, by definition, it's, we're not kidding about this. Those of us who have chosen God are willing to suffer, to fight for the souls of men. Look at Ephesians 6.11. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers. That's 
spiritual rulers. It's not flesh. He just said it's not flesh and blood. It's against spiritual rulers, against spiritual powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We are called to do battle in the spiritual realm. The physical suffering that we see and experience as a result of Satan is just the outworking of that spiritual battle. Okay? It's just a natural consequence of that spiritual battle. Don't focus on the physical. Focus on what God is calling you to pray about, to stand against, to stand for in the spiritual. We fight for our brothers and sisters who are still lost. And by fight, it's not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Fighting is praying. (laughs) Fighting is choosing. Fighting is standing still and watching the Lord do what he does. Okay? Fighting is a very different concept than what, what we do in the world today. Prayer is your most valuable weapon. We fight for our brothers and sisters who are still lost. We fight for our nations who are collectively choosing evil. We are willing to do battle so no one is lost. Look at Matthew 18, verse 12. This is Jesus speaking. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go search for the one that is straying? And if he turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. It is not the will of God that any child we're children. Perish. Okay. Look at Luke 21, verse 12. This is Jesus again. Jesus is talking to his disciples. And he's telling them basically the same thing I'm telling you today. Listen to what he says. They will lay their hands on you and will persecute you. Delivering you to the synagogues and prisons. Bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all because of my name. Yet not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. Now, wait a minute. Every single one of those guys he was talking to was martyred, with the exception of John. Jesus knew that. Jesus said, not a hair of your head will perish. He's not talking about the physical. God's not talking about the physical. Okay? He's talking about the eternal, about what really matters. God, Jesus knew they were going to die. Look at Matthew 10. Verse 16 through 39. This is Jesus again. We're going to read this because Jesus has a lot to say that's important here about suffering. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you. That means whip you in in their synagogues. And you will be... Even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. 
But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. And right there, that clues us in that Jesus is talking to us in the end times as well. He just right there said, I'm talking about the entire period until I come back again. Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. What you hear whispered in your ear, that quiet, still voice of God, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. He's not talking about Satan there. He's talking about God. Do not fear men who can kill your body because they can't do anything to your soul. Fear God who can put your body and your soul in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. This is, and this is Jesus speaking here. Do not think that I came to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his very own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross, his suffering, and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. This is the battle. And it's very real. And it is rising to a crescendo as the time becomes shorter and shorter for Satan to finish his work. Yes, God can protect us supernaturally. But he is a just God. And that means he will not force his choice on us. He will will allow us to make a choice, to choose him or not to choose him. And that means, by definition, he has to allow Satan access to us. There's a very famous story that you all probably know from the Bible about Job. And this is a, a story where Satan called God on this very thing. Satan said, You're not even letting Job make a choice. How can he make a choice? You blessed him. You put a hedge around him. You never let anything bad happen to him. He has no choice. He just has the blessing. And God said, well, yep. (laughs) You know. 
and gave Satan access to Job. And you know what happened? Job lost absolutely everything. But he did not curse God. He continued steadfastly to choose God. Because he chose God, he brought glory to God, and he has blessed generations of people who have suffered, right? And have been able to read the book of Job and understand that no matter how bad it gets, you can make it through. You can endure, even if you can't see the purpose of your suffering. So let's go back to the question that we heard in, that we started off with. Why doesn't God just like wave a magic wand and make all this suffering go away? Why doesn't God just get rid of Satan and make this not happen? And I'm going to answer you out of Scripture. I'm going to answer you out of Job. Not many people like this answer, but it is God's answer to that question. To understand the answer, I need to rephrase the question. The question is, why doesn't God just make Satan go away and make this all better? Rephrase the question. What that question is really saying is, God, I have a better idea than you. Okay? That's what that's saying. My design is better than yours, God. This is, this is a crappy design you've got going here. We're suffering down here. Okay? And God said, Job 40, verse 6 through 14. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's and can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at every proud man and bring him low. Look at every proud man and humble him. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. You see, in the end, we are always brought to a basic choice. Do we believe that the God we worship is a sovereign God? is a God of mercy and justice and is a God who loves us. Do we trust him implicitly regardless of our own better judgment? And you're never going to be able to escape that particular choice. You're not going to be able to water it down. You're not going to be able to rationalize it. That is the choice. Are you willing to choose God as he is? And are you willing to trust that he knows what he's doing, even if it means you are suffering? Job was an Old Testament example of suffering. New Testament example would be Peter, who denied his Lord three times, if you remember that story. And just, it crushed him. It crushed him. Even Jesus was worried about the impact that would have on him. And he warned Peter. He said, Peter, before the end of this day you're going to deny me but don't worry okay um, listen what Jesus said Luke 22:31. Simon that's Peter's other name Simon Peter Simon Simon behold Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat just like Job okay Satan saying I have a right to access to this man 
But I, Jesus, have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter did fall. He suffered terrible spiritual inside interior anguish. But he got back up again, and he went on to be a great witness for Christ to the world. Look at 2 Timothy 3.12. This is one to cling to. This is a memory verse. 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Every one of us. When we, we're going to read about suffering in Revelation all over the place. It, and, and sometimes in reading these scriptures that we've read today, we think it's suffering as in persecution for our faith. No, no, it is that, okay? But it's also all the suffering we experience. It's the loss of a child, the loss of a spouse. It's financial disaster. It's failure at your job. It's depression. It's disease. It's all of these sufferings are happening to us because we chose God, okay? And because we live in a world that is ruled by Satan and he does have access to us but if we can endure we can become a great testimony to the world and people will be saved because we endured our suffering Hebrews 2.14 therefore since the children share in the flesh and blood he himself that is Jesus likewise partook of the same flesh and blood that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those of us who are tempted. And First Peter 5, 6, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That is the call of the church in the world. Each of us individually must choose. And Satan pounces on those who choose God. The question is not why do bad things happen to good people. That's not the question. It is a statement. Because you chose God, bad things will happen to good people. Okay? Because Satan is going to pounce on you and try to drag you away from that choice. We've been warned of this in advance. Um, At the end times, our suffering will be increased by outright persecution for our faith. And there are Christians in, in many, many parts of the world that are undergoing that now. Because as the end approaches, Satan is going to take the gloves off. He's not going to be a secret about the suffering that he causes Christians as he is right now. And I gave you a a passage from Matthew 24, 9. 
Then, and this, I think this is Jesus talking. Yeah, it's Jesus. Then they will deliver you to tribulation. And he's talking about the times, these end times. And will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. Then the end will come. If we endure, our suffering serves many purposes. It's a great testimony of faith, and it's a testimony of how much worth we place on our God. How valuable is your God to you? Many of who see us suffer will believe and be saved. And yes, God could come and wave a magic wand. And make the suffering disappear. And, and punish Satan. He's already been judged. His punishment is set. We're going to see what it is. He can make that happen at any time. But he doesn't do it. He delays. Because he doesn't want to stop the battle. You see, once the battle stops, all the choices have been made. As long as we are willing to suffer... And as long as we are willing for the battle to rage on, there is still the chance that one more soul will be saved. Now, this is not the kind of thing to try to tell somebody who is suffering the loss of a spouse or a child or, you know. This is the kind of thing to study in advance, to ground yourself in, in your faith so that as you walk through your suffering, you can endure to the end. When you are with somebody who's suffering, just be with them. Just be with them. Second Peter 3, 3 through 9 talks about the fact that the Lord is not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. It's the scripture that backs up the statement that I just made. And it's the very essence of what it means to be a, a church and a witness to the world. That's why every single letter that Christ sent to the churches in Revelation ends with a statement saying, To him who overcomes is some blessing. Okay, it's different blessings for different churches. Overcoming means overcoming the attack of Satan. Overcoming suffering initiated by Satan. Overcoming is not the response to suffering initiated by God. If your suffering is initiated by God, and you know that to be a fact, the proper response is repentance. Okay? So when God is, uses the word repent, he's saying your suffering is from God. When he uses the word overcome, he's saying your suffering is caused by Satan. That's how we know in Revelation that these churches are suffering at the hand of Satan. And what is very beautiful is that God has taken the very worst that Satan can throw at us and turn it into a blessing. Because when we suffer, we're driven to God. We crawl right up in his lap. We talk to him face to face more often when, we're suffer- when we're suffering. And because of that, this church, Smyrna, is one of only two in Revelation that did not have any criticism from Christ. He didn't say, but you're messing up over here. It's because of their suffering. You can be thankful because your suffering will keep you close to Christ. It's those blessings that tend to get us to, you know, walk away from him. Revelation 2, verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. He's talking to Smyrna. 
Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. I'm not going to spend any time at all on on, um, ten, but here is a handout if you want to kind of start it along and, and pass it out. If you were in the Daniel class, you had a similar handout. And uh, you might want this one because it's been cleaned up a little. But what this is, is a look at the number 10. Definitely, I believe the number 10, pretty much any number in Scripture should be taken literally. And so I think this little church in Smyrna was fixing to experience 10 days of utter persecution. 10 literal days. But we also know that these letters are to the church of all ages. We've talked about that, okay, in previous classes. Therefore... If Smyrna is symbolic of the church, now we need to understand what 10 days means. And if you do a study through scripture of where the number 10 is used symbolically, almost always when it's used symbolically, it has a meaning of lots of, enough, plenty. it's It's a magnifier, okay? Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. There's, there's verses in there where, you know, I think it was, was, uh, was it Jacob complaining to uh, Laban that, you know, you changed my wages ten times, you know. Well, it may have not been ten times. It was lots of times. That's what that word was meaning in that scripture. And so I've given you just several pages worth of scriptures that show you how that is used in scripture. And so we can take this ten to mean that the church will experience lots of days of persecution, okay, when it's used symbolically like that. Christ encourages them to be faithful unto death, and he will give them the crown of life. Now, there's two words in Greek for crown. One is diadema, which we translate as diadem, and that is a crown given to royalty. It's a crown you get because you were born to it, okay? The other word for crown is stephanos. And that means wreath. It's the winner's wreath. Okay? And that crown is given to one who earns it. And the, the, the word Stephanos is the one being used here in Revelation. Because they are enduring to the end, they will be given the reward, the crown of life. That's what that word means there. Then it says, He who has an ear, this is in ver- chapter 2, verse 11, He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes, okay, he who endures this suffering that's being thrown at him by Satan, will not be hurt by the second death. Well, by definition, they're going to be hurt by the first death. Jesus just told them their first death is going to be pretty painful. Okay? They're likely to be being martyred. They're being persecuted to death. But they will not be condemned by the second death. The definition of the second death is given actually in Revelation. It's at the end of Revelation and it, because it occurs at the final judgment. Look at uh, chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and the books were opened and another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things that were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. 
and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 21.6. This is the very end of Revelation. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. This is what we would call hell, is the second death. After this passage in Revelation, heaven and earth pass away, and those who do not suffer the second death enter into eternity in a new heaven and a new earth in the presence of God and the Lamb. Revelation 2.12 starts the letter to Pergamum. Pergamum was a very ancient city. It was built on a hill about 1,000 feet up in between two rivers. And it didn't really rise, even though it was old, it didn't rise to power until the time of Alexander the Great. They revolted against the Romans in 88 BC. And so even though they had risen to power under the Greeks, when they revolted under the Romans, they fell from power because the Romans didn't exactly back down. Okay. But by the time Revelation had been written, they had regained some of their prominence. Listen to what it says in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So this is a church that has come through persecution, okay, and it's kind of exited on the other end. And it says, you dwell where Satan's throne is. We do not know for sure what that refers to. It could be a reference to the fact that Pergamum was the capital of Asia under Roman rule. It was the center of emperor worship. There were three temples to three different emperors there in Pergamum. And as capital and seat of government for that province of Asia, the governor there in Pergamum had what is called the right of the sword. That meant he could grant clemency, grant life, or he could execute. He had the right of the sword. So it is no accident that there is a big sword coming out of the mouth of Christ. That, that's part of the description that he selected for himself in addressing his letter to Pergamum. The sword is a, is a sharp two-edged sword. And it came from his mouth, and there are two Greek words for sword. One of the words refers to a dagger, a small sword, and that is um, makaira. Uh, the other sword is from phaya, and that is a saber or a long, broad cutlass. Okay, it's more like what we picture a sword to be, great big thing. Okay, the word dagger, the, or the smaller sword, the word for the smaller sword, is the one most often used in scripture. 
almost always like the sword of the spirit like in Ephesians 6 16 where it says take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God it's referring to a dagger like sword in Hebrews 4 11, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword it's talking about a dagger and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart so the word of God is quick moving very incisive small sharp dagger the sword that comes from the mouth of Christ in Revelation is not that kind it is the big heavy sword of war in fact it's rarely used it's only used twice in the whole New Testament once here in Revelation and you know when the other time was was back in the New Testament when Mary and Joseph took Jesus to the temple they took him 40 days after childbirth because it was time for Mary to be purified from her childbirth and when they took Jesus to the temple he was a couple months old at that point the Holy Spirit told a couple of prophets there in the temple that the Messiah was coming to the temple and they came up one was Anna the prophetess remember the other was, was Simeon and Simeon came up and blessed Mary and Joseph and Jesus and said to Mary his mother behold this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed the sword there is the, a sword of war it, that's the only other time in the New Testament that this sword is word for sword is used now it's clear from the fact that that he says the purpose of this sword is for thoughts from many hearts to be revealed well that's the same purpose as we just heard for the word of God that little quick dagger sword the purpose of the two swords is the same but the sword coming from the mouth of Christ in Revelation has an added connotation of war. Okay, Large-scale warfare and great might. It mentioned in verse 13, Antipas, a witness, a faithful one who was killed among you. Um, obviously, they had martyrs among their midst. We don't know anything about Antipas other than that he received this high praise from Christ. By, by the time Revelation was written, Christians in Pergamum had been persecuted for like 30 years. I mean, they had been undergone many years of persecution. And it, and it brought them closer to God. But, God. but they have come out of that period. And Christ has a criticism for, for them. He says, I have a few things against you. Verse 14. Because you have there some who told the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now the story of Balaam and Balak is not one that we study a lot and many people do not know the story or only know a very, very tiny part of it. Balaam appears in the history of Israel when they were wandering around in the, in the wilderness for 40 years eating manna, that whole thing. They were not, like we t commonly think, wandering aimlessly. That God went before them and God went behind them. God led them around the wilderness. You couldn't get lost in that wilderness for 40 years. This is too small, okay, if you look geographically. Um, God was leading them around. It was, part of, it was a punishment. 
And he led them ultimately to the promised land. Well, as they went into the promised land, Moses would consult God. Say, God, here's some people blocking our path. You're telling us to go this way. What do you want us to do? You want us to keep going or you want us to like go some around them? And God would tell him, go around them, leave them alone. Or he would say, no, I've given those people into your hand. You go march right on in and destroy every one of them. Don't leave any alive. Because... God did not want the Israelites to be seduced by the idol worship of those people. Okay, So the Israelites, they're approaching the land of Moab. And the Moabites, they are like panicking because the Israelites have just marched over two or three of their neighbors. Okay, So they know there is no way that they can stand against the Israelites. So King Balak, he has this great idea. He says, we're going to call on the services of this really famous prophet who lives real close to us. This prophet's name was Balaam. And he was known. He was very famous. In fact, he is so famous that we have records in our archaeological records of other prophecies that he did that had nothing to do with the Bible. This is how prolific and and famous this guy was. So King Balak calls the prophet Balaam, and he actually sends messengers to him and says, I want you to come over here and just put a few curses on the Israelites for me. Okay? Then things will be cool because we can only fight them supernaturally. We have no hope if we just go out there with our own swords and people. Well, the prophet Balaam was a very wicked man, but he was a true prophet of God. People don't usually realize that. But if you look in Romans 11:29, this is another memory verse. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. God gives you gifts at birth. He gives you gifts throughout your life. You are able to ask for gifts from God. He will give them to you. But though the gift and the call that God gives you personally in your life is irrevocable. And there are many examples in scripture, Balaam is one of them, where someone has been gifted. Balaam was a prophet. He was gifted as a prophet of God. And he chose to pervert that gift. God does not take the gift away. It's the same with preachers and teachers. That's why just because someone's a good teacher or they're a great preacher does not mean they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Just because they are gifted does not by the Holy Spirit does not mean they are operating in the Holy Spirit. That's why you have to test. You personally have to pray and test. Well, another example is Samson. Read the story of Samson. He's another one who's gift, who was gifted at birth and who, and who perverted his gift and God did not take it away from him. That's another example. Anyway, Balaam says, consults God, okay? He, he goes and God says, don't you dare curse those Israelites. You... You don't say, don't go with these guys. Don't say anything that I don't tell you to say. So Balaam says, oh, whoa, never mind. No, I can't do it. So he sends the messengers back to King Balak. Says, I can't do it. King Balak says, oh, man, send them back. Tell Balaam, it doesn't matter how much money he wants. I'll give him anything he wants. Just, Just come and curse the Israelites. And so the messengers go back to the prophet Balaam. And they tell him this, and Balaam says, it's not a matter of money, guys. (laughs) This is not about the money. He says, I cannot speak anything that God does not put in my mouth. Okay? Because his gift is from God. All right? It is a true gift. And Balaam knows this. 
He knows he's perverting this gift. So he consults God a second time. And God says, okay, because Balaam says, they're going to kill me if I don't go. It's not like I have a choice here, God. And God says, okay, fine. You go with him, but don't say anything except what I tell you to say. So next morning, Balaam saddles up his donkey. And this is the part of the story about Balaam that people usually know. Balaam saddles up his donkey and he starts trotting on off to Moab. And all of a sudden, the donkey just stops in the middle of the path. Well, the angel of the Lord is standing in front of her with a sword. And if she takes one more step, the angel of the Lord is going to absolutely slaughter Balaam and the donkey both. Because obviously, Balaam in his heart had no intention of doing just what God said. He had already decided he was going to curse those Israelites. So even though God said he could go, in his heart, he was choosing otherwise. And so God came and stopped him. Well, Balaam couldn't see the angel of the Lord, but that donkey sure could. Balaam utterly lost it. He whipped the donkey. He beat the donkey. And finally, the Lord opens the mouth of the donkey. The donkey turns around to him and says, Can't you see the angel of the Lord in the middle of the road? If I go any further, you're going to die. Now, obviously, Balaam had so lost it that he continued to talk. He had his conversation with this donkey. (laughs) That's how mad he was. He was out of control. And so the Lord, uh, you know, made himself visible to Balaam at that time. And and Balaam fell off his donkey, repented, apologized to the donkey, you know. and, And so God reiterated to Balaam. That you must not say anything except what I tell you to say. So Balaam goes on his merry way. Well, he gets there and King Balak is just like waiting at the door for Balaam to come. He takes Balaam and he go up to this mountain where they can see. They can't see all the Israelites, but they can see kind of part of the nation. They build seven altars and they, you know, make sacrifices. These are not men of God. This is called sorcery and divination. This is a very great sin. This is using your gifts in your own strength. This was how Balaam called God to himself to give him a a prophecy. God honored the gift. God came. God told him what to say about the Israelites, um, even though it was sorcery. You know, even though it was was not by the Holy Spirit. And so Balaam trotted up the top of the hill and he said, King Balak brought me here to curse the Israelites. But how can I curse a people the Lord God has not cursed? May my death be like theirs, a death of righteousness. King Balak says, what are you doing? This is, that's not a curse. You just blessed him. What, what's with this? And Balak says, I mean, Balaam says, I'm sorry. I just, you know, that's what God gave me to say. So King Balak said, no, you're not getting the picture here. So he takes him to a different mountain. This time on this mountain, he can see all of the Israelites. He can see how utterly overwhelming they are. Same thing. They do the sorcery thing. They build the seven altars. They do the offerings. Balaam gets, you know, a new word from God. And he stands up and it goes like this. God is not a man. He does not go back on his promises. The Lord God is with the Israelites. They will rise up like a lion and devour their prey. They will drink the blood of their enemies. King Balak says, you know, if you can't curse them, at least don't bless them. And so they try a third time. The third time was the worst of all, as far as the king was concerned. Because this time, 
Balaam did not use sorcery. He was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied in the Spirit what God had to say about Israel. And he uttered a great blessing and a prophecy of the exaltation of Israel ending with the Abrahamic promise, May those who bless you be blessed and those who curse you be cursed. Well, of course, King Balak is furious, but he's too scared of Balaam's actual power to kill him, so he sends him home. And before he left, Balaam planted the seed that did, in fact, destroy Israel. He suggested to King Balak that the way to get to Israel was to seduce them. And so the Moabites sent their women into the Israelite camp to seduce them and to bring them into idol worship. And they were successful. They got the Israelite men, some of them, many of them, to worship the idol Baal, the most hated idol, Baal, that God hates with a passion. Because you know who Baal is? Baal is a fertility god of Canaan whose name literally means husband and owner. Who was Israel's husband and owner? God. As a result, God ordered Moses to put to death anybody who had taken a Moabite woman. And a terrible plague started sweeping through the Israelite camp. And the people began to stream to the tabernacle, weeping and crying over their, the death and their sin. And at one point, a man of Israel had the gall to bring his Moabite woman into the assembly in the presence of Mo- Moses. And Phinehas, the son of Aaron, the high priest, took a spear and speared the couple, pinioning them both. And killing them. And at that point, the plague stopped. 24,000 Israelites died in that plague. To the church in Pergamum, Christ says, You are tolerating men like the prophet Balaam in your midst. They are leading my people astray, seducing them sexually and leading them into idolatry. I'm paraphrasing here, but that's what it says. This, Christ says, is the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. You see, if they don't repent from this sin, Christ, it's not, you know, maybe it's a plague, it might be a plague, but it's going to be certain death, because Christ is going to come and make war against them. We will stop there. We have just a little bit of Pergamum left for next week, and um, we will finish it up and start on Thyatira.